Welcome to the Pioneer Theatre Podcast. I'm Matthew Ivan Bennett. Our second new play reading of 2020 is The Messenger by Jeff Talbot. It's a female-centered adaptation of Henrik Ibsen's An Enemy of the People, a classic drama in the person versus institution genre of stories. If you've been to Play by Play before or PTC, then you know Jeff's work from A Public Education and The Sci-Fi Futurist Eye. He's appeared on stage as an actor at PTC in Doubt, Oslo, and The Odd Couple, to name three. He graduated from the Yale School of Drama, and his play The Submission won the Outer Critics Circle John Gastner Award. Without further ado, here's Jeff Talbot to talk about The Messenger. So you don't need to know anything about Henrik Ibsen's play to understand your play. That's right. But tell me why you decided to revisit his text. He's my favorite playwright. You know, uh, it's true you don't need to know anything about him, but I think almost all modern drama is built on the shoulders of him, Chekhov, Strindberg. And of those three, of that great triumvirate, Ibsen has always been the one I've gravitated towards because Mm. he was the great moralist. His plays were questioning the morals of the time, but the way he constructed drama is largely the way we learned to construct drama now. I think that's changing with a, a new brand of playwrights. But in the last 50 years, the Arthur Millers of the world... The Tennessee Williams of the world, they were all built on the shoulders of Ibsen. So I was always yes. very interested in, in looking at his work from my own point of view. And this play in particular has been revived a lot in the last 10 years because it speaks to politics, it speaks to global warming, it speaks to the press. It's a, it, it was prescient in so many ways. Or, if not prescient, at least establishes that the problems we're seeing now or the issues we're all facing now are the same issues we're always facing. They just, the, the lens through which we view them changes. But this play in particular has always been very interesting to me. I sat down thinking that I was going to just do a straight adaptation because I've always wanted to be a, a guy who you could come to to say, here's a Chekhov play. Can you give us a very straightforward version of this, but in your voice? And I instantly realized that that was not my interest with this particular play for a lot of reasons. Ibsen is really doubling down on some ideas about political society that we deal with in a very different way now. Okay. Uh, also, his play is incredibly centrally male, and that isn't... I, I don't think that's a really particularly healthy way to l- enter any conversation right now, to have a viewpoint that is solely male, and his play is heavily male. The female characters are a yeah. wife and a daughter. Right. And they're very, Love very... interests. That's right. And, very secondary. Yeah. Not only do they not pass the Bechdel test, they don't even pass, like, common drama tests. They barely exist as characters. The wife in his play is, a, is an interesting character. She definitely pushes back at the lead, but she's, but she's a secondary voice. And um, so you've, you've gone in a very different direction. That's Your right. Your story is very much a vehicle for women. Yep. His this, play has, like, 14 characters. My play has seven. And I, I looked at his play and trimmed it down to just the very basics of what is needed to tell the basics of his story. I read his play two or three times. I took notes on how the story works, like just what happens. There's a conflict over this. People do this. There's a conflict over that. They move on. And then I stopped reading his play and wrote my own play. And the big change I made was there are three central characters in his play who are at odds, a doctor in a town, a mayor in a town, and the editor of the town newspaper. They're all men, and two of them are related. I made two of them women. So the doctor in town is a woman. 
the mayor is still a man, they're related, they're brother and sister, and the editor of the paper is also a woman. And when I had that idea, I thought, well, am I creating a fantasy world? Because I wanted to leave the place set in rural Norway in 1882. I wanted it to at least be in the time that he had written in. Okay. But I really wanted to write a modern play. I wanted to write a contemporary play. The only thing that makes it not contemporary is those women are bound in the clothes of the time, the, the silhouettes of the time, the corsets that, that are representative of the way society is holding them in. That's what their clothing does to them. And I thought that was a really interesting way to tell a modern story. But there's also some meta-theatricality in your adaptation. Absolutely. Which is different from the extended realism, if we can call it that, of Ibsen. Yeah, one of the big issues with adapting his play, his big two-and-a-half-hour, five-act play into a, modern, into a modern telling is I really wanted to have like a 90-minute experience. I wanted to have a, a roller coaster ride for an audience. And in order to do that, the first step was getting rid of about half the characters. But a big stumbling block halfway through his play is a big town meeting. Everybody's at the town meeting. And it stopped me for a while. I was like, well, I don't really know how to deal with that. I don't want... 15 people in this play, but there is a group scene. And then in conversation with the director, Wes Grantham, and Karen Eisenberg, artistic director here, I think Karen said something that really sparked my imagination. It was something about how Pioneer works in conjunction with the University of Utah for, for, for students who are sometimes in the plays. She said, well, is there a way to you know, deal with students as possible outlets for actors in this play? And I immediately thought, well, if it's one voice and that voice is in the audience, yeah. then we've got something very, very different than a town meeting. Let's make the audience the town or let's make the audience the participants in the meeting. And then I went one step further and set it in a theater yeah. so that about halfway through the play, every, the, the trappings of theater that we're watching, like a very realistic office, a very realistic living room can change and we're all in the same world and it's a world of the theater. Well, it's an arresting moment and I'm excited to see it play out in the reading. Yeah. But I want to focus on another part of that town hall meeting. I think it is in that big scene that some anti-democratic sentiments get expressed by Dr. Stockman through Ibsen in the original play. Right. And so how did you deal with that as you updated and adapted it? It has this infamous line, the majority has might on its side, unfortunately, but right, it has not. I am in the right. I and a few other scattered individuals, the minority is always in the right. When I read that, that really stopped me. When I think it's back, chilling, right? Yeah. When I think back on this play, mainly what it awakened me to was the danger of the bandwagon effect. But then it, it also pushes into a little elitism. That's right. I think a big difference between – well, I'll just say between Ibsen and me. But I think it's a big difference between his drama, the drama of the time, and the drama now. But this is particularly true of me. As a writer, he used his plays, very beautifully, dramatically constructed, to make sure we knew what his opinion was. I think the doctor is speaking – I think the playwright is speaking through the doctor's mouth there. And – and not only do I find that not a particularly valuable road to go down as a writer, my interest is not to tell people what I think but to present questions. That's why I write plays. I don't understand why this is happening. Let's all try to figure it out together is usually why I write a play. And he's, he's presenting a view of society, democratic society, political society that is pretty black and white. 
And I wasn't really interested in that. I wanted to ask some bigger questions. But in his viewpoint about the majority, what he's talking about, I wanted to translate that to what I see is a – and this is not, not just what I see. I think what a lot of us are noticing right now in our very bifurcated society is this idea of confirmation bias, which is that we all are backing into a corner and staying in the corner with only the people that we agree with. You can translate that to the Republican, Democratic – Democratic Party conflict right now, but it also is just society in general because there's a lot of scary things going on right now. So I think it's human nature to find comfort in speaking to the people you agree with. But yeah. the problem in not speaking to the people that you don't agree with in a, in a rational manner is there's no opportunity to meet in the middle. And we're really losing the ability, I think, right now to carve out a middle ground. So I wanted to shift the focus from Ibsen's focus, which was, a, which was about an anti-democratic statement, and really ask the question, how can we meet each other in the middle? How can we find a way to talk, each other, talk, talk to each other, actually have a conversation, not a fight? And one of the big first steps I took, because his play does deal with the press, and I definitely wanted to deal with the press because the press is an issue for all of us right now. His, in his play, there's one paper in town, and in my play, there are two. And they, they represent mm-hmm. two very different views, just as there are two, I think— Sounds ma- familiar. Exactly. There are <laughs> yeah. two major news outlets right now, I think, that, that back into those corners in a way that separate, so that separate people into, well, which channel are you watching? And in this small town in the 1880s, which channel you're watching translates to which paper are you reading? And the doctor in my play— awakens to a question rather than having an opinion at the beginning of the play. She awakens to a question of what are we doing? Why aren't we talking to each other? Isn't that as dangerous as as any virus? Because the play definitely does deal with something that Ibsen's play deal with is there's a contagion in town. There's there's the possibility of disease in this town, which is also it's very, very timely. right? Exactly. Now. <laughs> uh, but she she takes that leap to ask like why aren't we why aren't we paying attention to each other because it's something in in listening to everybody around her she realizes for her is a problem or a question and for me it's a question too so digging into that in this play became a really interesting way for me as a writer and a human being to ask some questions that I wanted to ask and by the time the play ends I don't have any answers for these questions but I hope that at the end of 90, 95 minutes, the audience is engaged enough to ask themselves the same questions. Was there any journalism that you read along the way that inspired the the conflict in your play between listening to scientists and economic interests? I I wish I could say I I, I did some great big amount of research to find that out. But but because of this two-newspaper thing that I set up, I don't – the research is around us all the time. Like it is, it is on our televisions all the time. That research is life right now. Um, one of the – but I will say that one of the big stumbling blocks at the beginning of, of this approach to telling this story in terms of centering it on two women was is it, is it even possible that a woman would have been a doctor in 1882? Is it even possible that a woman would have been the editor of a newspaper in 1882? And I thought – that's not possible. So this is going to be kind of a fantasy telling. And the research that I did into both early journalism found that there were many women. They weren't just writing society pages. It's mm. a bit of a reach to say that they would have been the editor of a newspaper. But in my play, she inherits that from her dead husband and then improves upon right. the 
what he built. So that seems possible to me. And also in, 18, in the early 1870s, I think 1872, the London School of Medicine opened a school just for women to become doctors. And once I found that out, I was off to the races. It meant that much to my surprise in the late 19th century, the beginnings of feminism, the beginning of women taking on central roles in some of these institutions that were particularly male at the time was starting. And even though this play in 1882 in rural Norway is leaning a bit forward to suggest that the women had those positions, it's not that much of a lean. And it made it feel like not a fantasy anymore. And it allowed me to let the play stand a little bit on the shoulders of two smart women to begin the conversation of feminism too. And some of the things that they are coming up against in the play are no different than women in our society are still facing right now. Like major, <laughs> I mean, we just experienced this, major candidates trying to reach the highest office in the land who are female didn't make it across the finish line. And it's not because they weren't the people who were qualified. It's because our society is still grappling with who leads us and what that exactly. looks like. So writing it the way you did, you introduced gender dynamics on top of what I think is the core conflict of person versus right. institution. Did that surprise you at all in the writing or did it, it take over? It didn't take over. It did constantly surprise me. And the process of continuing to redraft this has has been trying to make sure that I'm never overstepping to, to make the play – a call to arms in in any way except for that we should talk to each other. So I, I'm not making statements about feminism. I'm trying not to make statements about about the press, about where we stand with the press. I'm trying not to not to tip my hand too clearly into what direction I might lean into answers in those directions. Just ask the questions. And in terms of women taking over the story, to me, it was just refreshing because it allowed it allowed two women to have conversations in front of me that I am just a witness to because as a playwright, I really become as hooey as it sounds, just the vessel to witness two people or more having a conversation. I really mm. try to get out of the way. And then once I add a director, once I add actors or they are added for me, um, you know, it's such a luxury to come to play by play at Pioneer and have a week to work with amazing artists. They get to ask questions that completely changed the play. They got 51 new pages on the second day of rehearsal because they asked a lot of questions. And a lot of those questions came from the two central women in our cast. It's funny how much easier the process goes when you are willing to let the characters work for themselves and Absolutely. not for you. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean I say that to young writers all the yeah. time. You may think you can have the smartest idea and muscle this into what it is, but that's just ego. That's just you trying to assert your own will. If you actually are humble enough once you've had the idea to try to get out of the way of the idea and it doesn't write itself, your job as a writer is then to craft everything that ends up on that page. But if you get out of its way, listen to what you're writing and let it tell you, you have a much better chance of success. So what are you working on this week in play-by-play -play and or what are you excited to see on Friday and Saturday? We're trying to, uh, to make sure that I often call plays a roadmap, an emotional roadmap for actors. As much as they are whatever they are for an audience, they have to be clear for actors. How do, you, how do I get from page one to page 107 in the case of this mm -hmm. play? And as, I, as a writer, have I provided a roadmap that helps you get from place to place? And actors are always the magic sauce. 
I, I can make fun of actors all I want because some, I'm an actor too and sometimes we can be kind of a pain because we're human beings and we have emotions and we can be prickly. But the truth is for a playwright, actors are always the magic sauce. A director is always the great magician at the head. So to be able to walk into a room and sit back for a week and listen to smart people, ask smart questions, allows me to make sure that the roadmap is clear for whoever then steps onto that road next because this is just these seven actors for this week. Hopefully there will be other weeks and other actors. And if this roadmap is clear, my participation becomes less and less vital. The job of the writer and the job of the director with each day is to become less and less important in that room as other people take the reins and run with your story. Jeff Talbot, author of The Messenger, thank you for doing this. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you for listening to the Pioneer Theater Podcast for The Messenger. For tickets, call 801-581-6961 or visit our website, pioneertheater.org. The readings are this Friday, March 13th at 7.30 and Saturday, March 14th at 2 p.m. and 7.30 at the Babcock Theater. The play is sponsored by Lee and Audrey Holler. Thanks are also due to Robert J. Nelson and the University of Utah for hosting us here in the audio studio at the J. Willard Marriott Library. Please subscribe to the Pioneer Theatre Podcast on Apple or find it on Buzzsprout and, of course, at pioneertheatre.org.